Welcome to the Inner Healing Unfiltered Podcast. My name is Shannon. I am your host. You can find me on TikTok at SoberShannon. Most of you might know me from over there. Today, I've got a new guest coming on the podcast. Her name is Miriam, and she is the founder of Mainline Harm Reduction here in Nashville, Tennessee, which is where I live. I have been helping her out with her organization, helping spread the areas that we are able to service. I go and fill up with supplies right now about every two weeks because I am so busy. I would love for it to be every week. But right now I go around and uh, I just do new areas that she's not in and kind of more towards where I live so I can help service that area with harm reduction supplies. I will let her introduce herself and give us a few facts about herself, and then we're going to get into our conversation today. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast. Don't forget to follow me on TikTok and follow the podcast for all of the updates on Spotify. Tell us a little bit about yourself. We know you're the owner of Mainline Harm Reduction here in Nashville. I founded Mainline, and I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) <laughs> but I'm doing it, and I'm in, and there's nobody else doing it. So yeah. That's kind of like why I showed up. No, there are no harm reduction services on a mobile basis to anybody who's on an app. And that's really a gap I want to fill. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I am a person who experienced chaotic use at the height of the like prescription medicine, opioid crisis, in quotes, I say. Yeah. <laughs> And so then, you were like a part of the pill mill days? Absolutely. Yeah. Like really just as soon as it was popping off, I was popping too. Yeah. Sure. And then my recovery was very like sobriety based. And then I introduced substances back into my life and realized that n- there's no room for people like me. Right. You know? And so we don't talk about that. And it's just not, it's not like um, a situation or like a place that you can be proud of. And Right. A lot of times there's this, uh, there's an expectation that people who experience the harms associated with drug use, that they live the rest of their life as a sober apology to everyone else who they did not hurt. Like, I didn't hurt anyone. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally get that. And I think a lot of people, they don't understand, like, I think a lot of people don't understand the difference in, like, um, just telling somebody you need to get clean, you need to get sober, and, like, what harm reduction actually is. So could you give us a lesson on the point of harm reduction and how the ideal way that you approach it and it should be approached, in your opinion? Right. So, like, a loose metaphor that I haven't really thought all the way through, so it might, it might not stick on all the points. But when there's, like, a tornado coming... And right. you see the news um, telling people, like, oh, God, a tornado. And people know, like, the devastation that can happen with a tornado. Right, like they're preparing for it. Right. <laughs> and then if the news only was talking about, like, what to do after the tornado when you've been hurt, and it's, like, this very linear one thing. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of things in between before the tornado hits. Right that you can do to, like, decrease the effects of the harms that the tornado might inflict. That's what harm reduction is. Harm reduction is, like, recognizing and validating 
that recovery isn't the, I want to rephrase that. Harm reduction is, it's the intention to humanize and validate and recognize that substance use disorder, people who are suffering in, in that level of substance use disorder should not have to suffer as much as they do. Right. And we could decrease that with lots of lots of different strategies. And I think a lot of people only support a harm reduction when it's a gateway to Recovery. being completely sober. Yes. Mm-hmm. And the approach that you kind of take and that, you know, my mindset has kind of reframed to over the time of what my recovery, my personal journey is, is that I don't expect everybody to get clean. Right. I know it's not feasible for everybody. I know some people are able to just do what they want. And maybe yeah. it was just a bad experience they had. Yeah. Even outside of the context of substance use disorder, a lot of people use drugs. And we we're we're living in such a dangerous drug environment yeah. that we do have to kind of um, recognize or just stop talking about only the substance use disorder. Right. People use drugs and that's okay. Yeah. It's not a moralistic thing. Yeah. There's very arbitrary like drug drug policies that are set up that have nothing to do with public health. Right, 100%. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of them are ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> if it was public health, alcohol would be illegal. Yeah. It would be like schedule one. And you like, had a TikTok one time where you were talking about, this is when I originally found you and how we connected, and you were talking about how you went to an event in Nashville. I think it was in Nashville, at least. It was a New you, Year's Eve party. Yeah, you went to an event. Everybody was drinking. They had the streets closed off, and you called it like they were regulating their drug use. and. You know, that's one thing that I heard in rehab a lot, too, is they would always say, I feel so bad for the alcoholics because, yeah, the the phrasing, I know. They would say they feel so bad for the alcoholics because they they see it everywhere. They can legally get it. Right. It's on the media everywhere and things like that. But you your take in that TikTok on it was like the regulation. Yeah, the harm reduction we put in place around it. Right. Um. Also, like, during alcohol prohibition, the alcohol that was available being smuggled over, there's something called the iron law of prohibition. So if something is black market because of the policies, right? the people who are smuggling, it only makes sense that they smuggled the most potent version of that substance. Yeah. So beer disappeared during prohibition. I didn't know that. Yeah. It was okay. always, like, liquor. Yeah. Highest highest alcohol content possible yeah so that's what's happened here too why we see fentanyl and why we're seeing xylazine and all those things our our prohibition market it just doesn't make sense to like bring a bunch of like oxycodone yeah i wonder you said like since the beer was gone and it was i because i never heard that actually you just taught me something but i wonder if that's why like moonshine was made yes exactly exactly okay that you know makes sense now and so what I think is really fortunate for the alcoholics, um, which I don't even like that word. She's putting they, quotations around it. <laughs> yeah. You just can't see her. <laughs> I don't know why I'm still doing that, but like. Okay. Yeah, we, we're working on phrases and wording and what we like and what we don't like. It's hard to know that like the people who are listening can't see me. Yeah. So, yeah, but I don't like the phrase, like just a little offshoot, follow me. I don't like the phrase drugs and alcohol. It's 
drugs. Yeah. There's not, alcohol is a drug. You don't get to separate the two. Yeah. They yeah. it's drugs. If you do alcohol, you do drugs. Yeah. Yeah. So with prohibition and beer going away, um, people who drank and experienced alcohol use disorder were forced to a really extreme level. And that's what's happening. Like people would do the milder version of the substance that they like right. if and it now, were available. It's kind of like, you know, like the fentanyl crisis right now. Totally. Like it, everybody was on heroin or mm-hmm. pills from the pill mills, and now everybody has to do fentanyl. Right. Like, I never wanted to be a nodder, like nodding off and yeah. out of it. And when I was on prescription opioids, I wasn't. Yeah. I, we, I you hear a lot of life. people say, like, like, the real pills from, like, the doctor's. You always hear people say, like, oh, it gives me energy. And I'm like, yeah. I never had that experience. I totally had that experience. Yeah. 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 I, I hear was that mothering all the time. and I was I was housewiping and I was yeah. building a whole life and it was feasible and it was balanced. Yeah. I mean, yes, I was definitely emotionally unstable and there was a, a lot of fucked up shit. But also as soon as I got cut off of those, yeah, like the safe supply when it went away. And I was, like, forced into, like, the drug war market. Yeah. No, that's when I that's when I overdosed. That's when I nodded. That's when I, you know, was, More like. More risk. And it, it was when I started, like, chasing drugs and money. Yeah. That wasn't happening before. Right. It, I, it becomes a hobby. Yeah. It becomes a hobby. Yeah, that's when the tornado hit. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, really, though. <laughs> So how do you know, because I actually never looked this up, like when did harm reduction start? Was this before pill mills or after? Right. I mean, in like specifically related to drugs, harm reduction, like if you think about it, birth control is harm reduction. Right. There's That's a good point. Yeah. There's It's specifically related to drugs. It was during the HIV crisis. Right. Yeah. And it was black led and it was a really important social justice movement, which it still is. Right. For, like, the health, well-being, and humanity of people who use drugs. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Mm-hmm. As far as, like, your harm reduction with Mainline, shout mm-hmm. out to shout out to you guys. You're part of you <laughs> I know. I know. Shout I love it. Shout out to us. <laughs> but it... I think a lot of people, like, for listeners, they think harm reduction, and they think of these, like, little clinics with this door in a back alley that you can like walk through when you secretly get all these using supplies which I don't even know if everybody listening knows what I mean when I say using supplies yeah so explain the difference in the safe syringe program and how mainline does harm reduction right so like the government has decided that to a lot of people have died they can't ignore like the harms that have inflicted society. Right. And there's been, like, HIV outbreaks because people can't find syringes and they're sharing. Right. The government, like, bare minimum response is to say, all right, we'll just, like, make these tiny little places where people can go and get syringes and then they have to bring back their dirty ones. Right. So it's like a trade. They have to bring in the ones they use to get new ones. Right. Which is also dangerous and yeah yeah (laughs) i don't know any addicts that would just carry around a bunch of dirty needles the the (laughs) unhoused ones have to 
Yeah. That's the issue I have with syringe uh, exchange programs is it doesn't necessarily, it's not set up with unhoused people in mind. Right. So unhoused people, if they have to bring back their used syringes. Right. Um, to get their new ones, it means there's a market for used syringes, right? Right. So you, if you stole somebody else's, you would get double next time you went in with all of their syringes plus yours. Yeah. So in order to not get yours stolen, it's safer to just carry your dirty syringes around with you all day. Right. And I do think that's fucked up. Like, I think it's fucked up from not only like a health concern, um, it's also fucked up as in like, we know one of the first questions cops ask when yeah. they talk to you, like, do you have any dirty needles? Do you have right. anything that'll prick or poke me, you know, when right. they search you? And it's like, well, now, yeah, actually, I have 20 in my pocket right now because I was going to trade them in. It's, it's like, dangerous <laughs> on a couple different levels, but then also it's undignified. Imagine if, yeah, imagine if, like, you had to carry around any bio waste from your body for a whole week. Yeah, I remember you, you yeah. used the tampon analogy. Tampons, tissues. Yeah. Condoms. What if you had to bring all your dirty condoms to the health department to a special building? Yeah. I mean, that's crazy. Nobody's doing that. And that's not a crisis response. No. You know, the HIV so crisis, imagine if they were doing that with condoms. That would be a whole so, other problem. Yeah. Condom saturation happened instead. Yeah. And that's what needs to happen with syringes. I 100% agree. Like, syringes and Narcan, there should be just as much out. And and smoking devices. and just Yeah. Everything. Because the SSPs, which is the syringe, Safe Syringe Program, am I saying that right? Syringe Service Program. Syringe Service Program. Um, you, you, they don't allow, like, pipes at all. So it's just syringes. Right. The ones it's that a, you have to trade. <laughs> yeah. So Biden's, like, harm reduction initiative started with smoking kits in the bill. Yeah. And then that was like walked back on because like everybody freaked out. Like yeah. buying crack pipes with my taxpayer money. Right. And the deal is, is like people who can people who have access to smoking devices, that's a that's like a injection alternative. Right. And if you're just slinging needles, then somebody can only shoot up. Like why not just give them options yeah, to you like could be switch it up? Ex- like Escalating, yeah, you could be escalating. I feel like somebody's use and yeah. also fucking with their tolerance levels, absolutely, and making them out the roof, yeah, by saying, Oh, well, you can't smoke anymore, but you can shoot. And smoking is also an overdose prevention, right? Like I you kn- can dose easier, yeah. I know a lot of people who um smoke fentanyl that mm-hmm. I've worked with, and like people that I've had clients and rehabs that I was at that. They preferred that way because they knew when to stop. Right. And it's like when you shoot all the time and you don't know exactly what your product is. Yeah. You can't it, unring the bell. Yeah. You yeah. can't do that. You can't start small, really. You can just, and it, and it really is, um, it really sucks that we as a society aren't recognizing that people deserve to get high and not die. Right. That's just the basics of harm reduction. Yeah, I, I think it's like telling somebody, like, if you do any drugs or you're struggling, like, we don't give a fuck about you, basically. And that's the absolute <laughs> truth. That is that yeah. is when I'm, like, I am so discouraged 
by like just where we are. I really am. I'm going to cry. God damn it. (laughs) It's okay. (laughs) It's so true though, Mm. because it's like, the, the reason that I started the harm reduction thing, like, the interest in it and, you know, like, my past, like, it was, yeah. when I came into recovery, it was very, uh, in a rehab, yeah. halfway house, do, 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 like, yeah. do it by the book, and uh, I lost a lot of friends that way, yeah. because they felt so much shame when they, I might cry, they, <laughs> they felt so much shame that when they did pick that drug up again, that they couldn't confide in somebody like me yeah. with that outtake on using right and that kills people so it's really more about compassion instead of saying here's all the drugs you want like I think Mm -hmm. people just think that we're out here handing out baggies actually (laughs) if I could I would right if I could provide a safe supply like Canada (laughs) oh I for fuck sure would do that yeah um but yeah harm reduction isn't condoning drug use and it's not promoting it and it is not um saying that drugs are safe yeah it is the opposite of that it is saying the the illicit drugs are not safe right and we are so sick of everybody dying yeah and we could provide them with tools for their health and wellness and provide some level of safety so that they can be as safe as possible Right. We know that the we know drugs aren't safe. Like fuck off. Like <laughs> back to the alcohol thing. Bars. They right. Have, they have security. Yeah. They have. We can't serve you after this many. They have a licensed professional. Yeah. Who doses the <laughs> the drug users. Yeah. Yeah. They put certain measurements in their glass. Right. And, you know, and it's just and and then if the bartender overserves. The bartender right. can be arrested. Right. Absolutely. So it's just like, uh, uh, yeah, there's just like yeah. this disconnect and to there's no society that alcohol is completely different. There is literally no shame for somebody who drinks alcohol to call right. a friend for a ride home. Yeah. That's like, oh, you're being responsible. Good for you. Yeah. But imagine calling a friend um, to ask them for a clean syringe. Right. Like, that's a responsible move, you dicks. Like, let that be okay. Yeah. <laughs> Which, that made me just think of something. I, I was in Florida with a girl once, and she left to go relapse the halfway we were in. That's where she left from. And, um, you know, I, I knew what she was going to do, and we we talked about it, and she still went out, and I was texting her the whole time. And I checked in. I said, where are you? You know, everybody else is talking shit about her. They're yeah. like, oh, my God, she's going to go get high. And I was like, well, if that's what she feels like she needs to do, right. um, I'm just going to make sure she lives. So mm-hmm. I was texting her the whole time. And I was like, where are you? And she's like, I'm at Walgreens. Um, I was trying to buy syringes. And Walgreens wouldn't sell her the syringes. God damn it. So you know what she did? She walked to a 7-Eleven and found people that looked like they were doing the drugs she was yep. doing. And she got a dirty one off yep. them. Absolutely. And so that was the choice she was stuck with. And luckily, I don't think she ever caught anything or anything. But still, like, that's a chance that she was willing to take. Yeah. Like, we we are forcing people (laughs) into it by denying them the validation of their drug use. Yeah. And that's, that's where I stand, is drug use, all of it, is valid. Yeah. Like, everybody's reasons are different, right? Yeah. But, like, we we 
we kind of assume that every fucker in the United States can reach the pinnacle of mental health if they just try. Some people aren't going to do that. Like with the tornado analogy, like some people have a storm cellar. Some people have a strong, sturdy house. They can survive a storm a lot better than somebody who lives in a trailer or is in a tent. Yeah. Like we have to recognize the vulnerabilities of people and know that when it comes to mental health, perfect abstinence and perfect mental health might not be an option. And if somebody's found a substance that helps them feel more calm and feel more safe and feel, I don't know, euphoria is a gift. Why are we denying that from people who are suffering? Yeah. And I feel like, you know, we don't always know people's like stories. Like, yeah, you're talking about like mental health, like one, they could have lived in any conditions growing up and they could have been in this bad mental space for over 30 years of their life. Right. Maybe this is their way of trying to live, but that doesn't mean they need to die. My personal experience was um, from the age of, I was raised in a religious fundamentalist Christian cult and people died and uh, it was an umbrella for all the other kinds of abuse. Yeah. It wasn't just religious abuse. Right. Uh, We lived in abject poverty. My parents gave all the money to the church. Yeah. And I stole food from my neighbors when they went off to work. Like, as a child, I broke into people's houses to steal food. For, like, food. survival. Yeah, it's fucking survival. And there was sexual... Can I... Yeah, oh, you it's can not say TikTok. Anything. Yeah, <laughs> you can say anything. There was rape when I was a kid. Yeah. All through. Like, every single one of my like, siblings... Like, well, against, like, all the children? Yes. Type? Okay. Every one of my siblings had, like, at least four or five abusers. Man. And we all have different abusers. Oh, like wow. think about that. That's a lot of it's people. A, it's a good 30 abusers on one family from that church. Wow. Right? So, like, yeah, we we were the ones in a tent when the tornado hit. Yeah. Yeah. And I I self-soothed. Yeah. And I and opioids were helpful. They right. really were. I was for sure going to kill myself or do something fucked up. Right. Yeah. And they got me through a moment in my life. You know, I always say, like, even though, like, I'm not on any drugs, so I don't know how I want to word that. (laughs) Even though I'm not actively using and what I use to use. Yeah, you're not chaotically using. You are chaotically vaping right now. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But I I always say, like, Mm. drugs saved my life. Yes, and I too. think that's really hard for a lot of people to comprehend. Right. But I could, like, for example, my first marriage was very abusive mentally and physically. He held right. a gun to the back of my head at one point, and I still had to lay beside this man and go to yes. sleep at night. And I would eat when he was asleep and stay up all night because, he would, you know, crazy yeah. stuff would go on. I'm not trauma competing, but... I get it. Yeah, 100%. And so, like, had I not been high that Mm. entire time, I would have taken myself out. Yes, absolutely. So it saved me through that time. I might have been the the headline news of the woman who, like, drowned both her kids in the tub and killed herself. 
Right. You know? Because it's just like this switch in your brain where everything goes down and down and down and down. Right. And that was my way to, like, disassociate. I was so lucky to have opioids in my life at the time that I did. And then when when I got recovery, I also 12-stepped it up and sobriety and diagnosed everyone (laughs) I knew as as a fucked up alcoholic or drug addict. I did that, too. He has a beer every day when he comes home from work. I'm like, I'm like are you okay? You you drinking two days in a row. <laughs> are you okay? Yeah. <laughs> and then it turns out, like, I needed some substances still. Right. Are in you comfortable to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what is your... Because people have this big definition, which I'm also trying to change in my perspective after hearing you say this, because it, like, put a light bulb in my head. Um. The word relapse, a lot of people think like, oh, they relapsed. That means they did like anything like, oh, maybe they took a yeah. weed or maybe they had a sip of a beer. They relapsed. Yeah. Like, you know, and you, you, I heard you say like a relapse is just when you are back in chaotic use. Yeah. It's a reoccurrence. Like a slip of up symptoms. is not a relapse. I call it a reoccurrence. It's an yeah. episode. It's a reoccurrence of symptoms of my mental health. Flipping. Right. Yeah. That, and then I combined it with drugs right that's what I call a relapse so for you you're controlled like harm reduction for yourself you you still are able to drink is like you know however much you prefer to drink Mm -hmm. I'll kind of let you talk about that and other things real quick (laughs) um so for me like what I'd like to really clearly say is for anybody with is like the social narrative for what's appropriate and good yeah. Such a hold up and it's so dangerous. It is so dangerous. Yeah, I think a lot of things like that can be super dangerous. And yeah. that kind of brings me like to the next thing I wanted to talk about is when we say like war on the the drug war, like the war on drugs. We right. think of like the old school like televised, like, oh the war on drugs. So can you explain it from a harm reduction perspective what right. the drug war actually is? So what I said earlier, like drug war, drug policy isn't shaped and defined by public health. Right. So it's a vasoconstrictor, which like that's a huge buzzword right now when we're talking about xylazine. But vasoconstriction is just like you, you vasoconstrict when you're out in the cold. Yeah. It's just a thing your body does to like protect you in certain situations to like, you know, help preserve your bodily functions and blood flow but it it does cause like a decreased blood flow to like certain like your digits your phalanges your toes yeah um constriction is just a thing the human body does and a medication can um facilitate that right so how do we feel about people calling it the zombie drug we hate that (laughs) we really hate that i don't like that at all I guess what I want to say about xylazine is I would challenge everyone listening to think about every drug trend and the way that it's been talked about and the public narrative that's been um, ingrained. Right. Reefer madness. Right. Right? It's like with every drug that when that comes out, Mm -hmm. that it's been 
mixed in with yeah. other drugs like xylazine right now is in fentanyl if you find heroin it's probably in heroin but right you know it, it's being cut into other things right now and um people are just saying like oh it's a tommy drug like your limbs are gonna rot off and etc yeah. etc and, and i'm not disputing any of those harms right. um i'm just inviting my community to agree upon a logical rational constructive way to talk about it that right. doesn't match the way we've always talked about it which has led to justifying policy right restrictive policy is always justified by mass hysteria around a drug yeah and if we do if we put policy in place that is restrictive even around xylazine something else will come yeah there'll be something, something else. weirder is gonna happen right because that like just I want my friends and community to show up with people who are already using xylazine and who have been victims of an unsafe supply in mind. Right. Right. Like it's it's not cool like to just get online and talk about flesh necrosis and zombies and especially when it's a benefit to throw somebody in a rehab i'll say it right that's, that's what I fucked, to say. you know but yeah it's super fucked but i always imagine when i'm producing content i'm imagining who's listening and who i want to benefit the most right and it's always people who are using drugs yeah those are my that's my audience that's the safe space i want to create yeah and when it comes to people who are victimized by this unsafe supply and who have unknowingly become addicted to xylazine and they are they are experiencing the consequences of that and their bodies are being harmed yeah i want to i want to like stress to everyone we're already fucking scared right we're already fucking scared we yeah. know the supply isn't safe right and one of the side effects for xylazine too that i haven't mentioned and why they are calling it this zombie drug and all this misinformation and things is because if you already have open wounds, whether it be from abscesses right. from using, or I don't know, maybe you ran into the fucking door and busted your leg open, you know, just right. like any type of wound, a paper cut at this point. Yeah. It will make that worse. Right. It will make that worse. It spreads it, it opens it larger. And it becomes a problem over time to where, you know, we've had even participants in the program that we were like, we need to take care of this wound. Yeah, absolutely. Like, we're treating xylazine wounds. Right. And it sucks. And we yeah. are scared. And when we're scared. And they're scared to show us. Yeah. They're scared to show us or even go to the hospital that right. these things are happening. And that, that that's a whole nother subject that we can even get into about, yeah. like, the healthcare system and how scared people are to mm -hmm. even go for like an abscess or a cut on their leg to yeah. go to the emergency room to get looked at because they are an active addiction. Right. It's it's back to the tornado analogy. <laughs> if if the tornado hit and then people were harmed, right, and then the only news and the only way it was being talked about was just like images of the devastation of the tornado yeah. and the injuries that happened to people um that's missing a lot in between that we could provide people to be yeah. 
healthier. (laughs) It's just sensationalizing the suffering instead of talking about the the steps that can be taken to heal and to take care of oneself. Being a person who uses drugs from an illicit supply is the most disempowering thing in the fucking world. We're just at the mercy of whatever happens. Really? Yeah. I feel like we're also like at the bottom of the barrel. Yeah. We're the least of the concern in the public. We are a disgraced social class. Yeah. Absolutely disgraced. And when it comes to like the war on drugs and the systems that have been put in place and the reasons they were put in place, what I see is like Hunger Games style game masters brought the fucking tornadoes and then they're sensationalizing it and offering no real um, solutions. And it's very funny to me, actually, that in the public eye, that when we say like, oh, like harm reduction needs to be, you know, it it needs to be big. It needs to be everywhere. It needs to be a thing. And they look down upon that like, oh, no, like disgrace right but the the soccer mom that pops his annex bar every night and drinks a bottle of wine to go to sleep there's absolutely no problem with that it's arbitrary i don't i don't understand the thought process in that at all it's arbitrary shaming of people who use drugs and what we're doing is missing all the space in between when somebody uses drugs or starts recovery Right. Right. Why are we just letting them die in between there? I can't right. think of any other like mental health disorder that we are encouraging the increase of suffering for their own good. That right. imagine it. Imagine if you're like suicidal cousin, we were like the the social advice and the like agreed upon standard was to let her fucking suffer and hurt herself and and create space and distance and don't enable her to be suicidal and just fuck off and don't give her money and And just and you can only come back when you're not suicidal if yeah (laughs) once you cure your problem then you can re-enter society right that's the thing i don't like drug use and drug people who use drugs end up being separated and othered yeah and they are all of us yeah just some people are lucky enough to like a a safe and legal drug. That's yeah. the only difference between the soccer mom. Yeah. You know, and me. Exactly. Me too. <laughs> I want to go back to what you were asking about, like, moderation, how I navigate, yeah. like, relapse and recovery. Um, where did I leave off? Rape happened, and then... Abuse happened, and then drugs happened, and then recovery happened, abstinence happened. But after, So you tried to abstinence the first time. Yeah. You decided, like, I don't want to do this I anymore. I did it for three years. Like, yeah. total so abstinence. So did you go to a rehab? No. You just got clean on your own that time? I Actually, I did. It's just a blip that I barely even count. But I, I went to a rehab, and I was kicked out after 10 days for, like, talking to a boy. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I wrote a letter to a boy, and they told me they were kicking yeah. me out. He, like, snuck me his number, and I was, like, calling him on the <laughs> payphone. And Was it a faith-based rehab? It was, no, it was a government-run, okay. like, state-run okay. one. Yeah. But, like, fuck you. Yeah. 
But like that's not a reason to like deny somebody like really important health care. Yeah. So how were those three years for you? How did how did that look? Was it like twelve step style, abstinence? It was it was twelve steps. It was total sobriety. It was um, it was shaky. I yeah. always felt wobbly. I always felt like I might be on the verge of like tipping over the edge. Yeah. And then I then I just grew up. I got trauma therapy. I like kind of phased out of needing substances to yeah. cure my emotional ails. Right. You know, that just wasn't the thing that was happening. But I have a joint dysfunction. I was in pain. Yeah. Um, I have so an anxiety that, disorder. Was I, that originally how you got into the pill mill? Yes. Pain? Okay. Yeah. But no. Like, before that, I was getting fucked up. I was a teenager. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, we all did that. Yeah. <laughs> like, I was, I was familiar with how getting yeah. high felt good, yeah. but opioids when, is when it, like, clicked. Like, this feels yeah. really good. So you were in pain, and then what was, like, what, what did you do when you were in pain? You decided, like, I'm not doing this shit anymore? I was or... in pain, and then I was I was anxious all the time. I had an yeah. anxiety disorder. And as much trauma therapy as I did, like, trauma healing is slow. Oh, yeah. It's really so very fucking slow. slow. I'm a decade in, and I'm still, like, fucked up. Yeah. You know? And I've made a lot of progress, but Kratom helps me. Yeah. It brings my anxiety down. I function yeah. a lot better in my life. Yeah. And if I weren't able to access that I believe my trauma healing would be even slower right you know so you were doing the kratom while you were doing the trauma therapy at the end of this three years is that kind of how it the timeline was absolute sobriety and then I did um LSD LSD and EMDR all right yeah <laughs> and how like the EMDR hard yeah like I couldn't do EMDR without um, chemical aids. Yeah. And it was frustrating because you have to like build this huge foundation of yeah. like stability and emotional health before you can actually get to the nitty gritty. Yeah. But when I microdosed LSD and went to my therapy session, we got through a whole yeah. a whole lifetime of trauma in just a year. It takes away um, you know, even like shrooms. Timeline <laughs> was sobriety and then like Oh. During sobriety, I was never actually sober. That's a really important thing. Like yeah. I, I was never completely abstinent. I was sneaking beers. Oh, I remember you yeah. told me this before. And then you would beers. like feel bad about it. And no, uh, yeah. Was this, yeah. I would like shove three beers down at the bottom of the dumpster at my apartment or yeah. my apartment complex, so that nobody, like even my neighbors, wouldn't know. Like Miriam drank three beers. Right. What the fuck. So you had like this constant like shame and like rebuilding shame and, and secrets rebuilding. and 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 just like it re it like reaffirmed the belief that I was like a hopeless yeah. addict junkie who couldn't help themselves. Right. And my therapist really was right on when she was like. So did your therapist cool. know you were on the LSD when you came yeah. to the? No, that she couldn't have performed her duties if she knew. I guess like that is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> She probably thinks that she is like so good the best at therapy therapist ever. <laughs> She's like, "Wow, we unpacked ten years here." <laughs> like that's so true, though. Like I think, like you know, any psychedelic in a, I mean, they're doing fucking ketamine treatments, right? But like shrooms, LSD, uh, 
salvia even on small doses right because you don't want a big one of that <laughs> you'll jump out a window <laughs> i've seen people like hallucinate real bad on salvia to, i think you're supposed to like chew it like the actual yeah, they were, like, and smoking not smoke it, it. yeah mm. but i think any psychedelic in a therapy environment is very helpful because it removes that disassociation from the actual trauma and then you're not so scared of it like it's it just coming out of your brain to, to feel it right it was it was safe enough to be that vulnerable it was safe yeah. enough to like play the movie yeah and it didn't bring up for me the so that was like a huge turning point huge yeah absolutely huge yeah and then i recognized that i'm not i'm not a junkie and i'm not an addict and i'm not any of those things yeah i'm a textbook trauma case right. and i found coping mechanisms I'm really thankful for those coping mechanisms. Right. And I am I am open to having substances as a coping mechanism. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And that's what Kratom is for me. Um, alcohol is sometimes. Right. Mostly it's just fun. Yeah. Um Yeah. And and then psychedelics have led me to a place of understanding about myself and my trauma and my experiences and as led me and allowed me to feel connected to other people right and that's the thing that trauma really does is it disconnects you yeah like i guarantee you 100 percent. i didn't like even know who i was no before i started working through trauma right and you're not safe in your own body or your mind like yeah. you're just like i want to get out of it like yeah. you feel like you feel like a alien and like a skin suit is like how I think of it. That's good. I like, like that. you just don't even feel like part of this world. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good way to Yeah. to describe it. And opioids the first time I did opioids, you know there's always like those documentaries that talk about like chasing the dragon or like the first yeah. time someone did something. Oh yeah. And then they're always chasing that feeling. Yeah. I that didn't happen to me. I had an experience with opioids that every time I did opioids happened again. I felt safe in my body. I felt safe in humanity. I I right. felt like I belonged in my world and in my I guess you could think like it kind of like cut off um like that what am I trying to think of like that anxiety since you said you have an anxiety disorder yeah. like you were able to like control your own thoughts maybe more. Like yeah it, because with anxiety i feel like i have all these thoughts and i'm like are these mine like why am i thinking 500 things at one time yeah i believe i was in like a chronic state of uh disassociation yeah until i used opioids and they gave me like so when i was little and my home environment was incredibly unsafe my grandmother would sometimes come and get me and i would come to the door and i'd be like shoes going and that's like our, her whole thing was Miriam always said she was going. Like that meant you were going to leave. Yeah. Aww. And she would like do normal things with me. Like help me brush my teeth. Yeah. Teach me how to like take a bath and use real soap and shampoo. I never knew how to like wash my own body. And then at night she would tuck me in and she would billow the sheets. She would like throw them up and then let them like settle around me in these big yeah. plumes. And my grandmother i mean one safe person in my life gave me an example of what it should feel like to be loved right. safely you know 
Yeah. And opioids kind of did that too. It gave me a little glimpse of how I could access that in my own mind. Right. And then I could replicate it outside of opioids if I worked really hard. And I did that. Yeah. Like, I spend a lot of my time feeling safe. Yeah. Outside of opioids. I I hear you say that all the time. Like, you're in Mm -hmm. your safe place or, you know. Yeah. And I've learned, I've very much learned, like, what I need to do for myself to honor my trauma. Yeah. And to not hate myself. Yeah. And to not be, like, buried in shame. Right. And that's that's really what Mainline, for me, is about. Um, letting people feel worthy as they are, like yeah. totally as they are, before recovery, even if they never end up sober. Air quotes for the people who yeah. can't see. <laughs> I just want to provide somebody somewhere a glimpse into what safe love is. Right. And safe love is to recognize that somebody's struggling, recognize that somebody's fucked up, recognize that the suffering is there, and um, ask them to change nothing. Right, just like meeting them where they're at. Just be there. Just be there and love them. And ask them what they need and what could actually help them. Yeah, I think like a good like visual for people listening to like kind of put it into perspective is like even when we go out and we're handing out safety and supplies, to the community like we're out there with hugs and love and we don't treat them any different than I treat my best friend like they they literally think we're the best of friends you know like we actually care about them well we are peers yeah like I know I know everybody's name and I know exactly okay we we are gonna have to come back to this but I know exactly how many people have died this year and I know their names and I know where why they died and i I put money on the books of people who get arrested. Yeah. I I validate that going through withdrawal is a terrible traumatic thing. And if my 10 bucks can solve that, I'm I'm fucking doing that. Yeah, I actually judge me all you want. A video of a girl on TikTok today, her family was recording her and she was in severe withdrawal screaming and crying and she was in withdrawal pain. Yeah. And they said, "Well, you got to go through it. You got to go through it." And she was willing to go to the hospital, but the hospital was so far she would need to use to get there. Because right. we're talking about shitting on yourself, throwing up, being in physical, physical pain. Seizures. Seizures. <laughs> like stroke risk. And they want and, her to sit yeah. in the car for an hour and sit through that. Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't think a lot of people understand what an ask that is. Like, and I how, will fight you at this point. And how it's not enabling to let someone suffer less. Right. And to approve that and to validate it. Right. Like, a prescription and a, and a diagnosis is a privilege of people with health insurance. Yeah. 100%. And everyone else is, like, fending for themselves. For real. It's, it's, it's uh, insurance is a whole nother thing we're about to get into. <laughs> So, like, access to insurance. So, let's say that you, you, even state insurances are included in this, but kind of on a smaller level. Um, But if you are blessed enough to have private insurance and you want to get help, not just for mental health, but, you know, for drugs or alcohol, whatever, um, Mm -hmm. and you go to a rehab, 
there's a thing that's called body brokering. And I know you know about it. And I know that I was working for a company that I found out was brokering and I ended up leaving them and it, it kills people. So body brokering in my own definition is human trafficking for the profits of insurance. That's my definition too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so body brokering is like really popular and a broker basically gets paid out and um, kickback. Yeah, they're getting kickbacks. Yeah from these rehabs for brokering for them. So right. they send in mass amounts of people. Um, Sometimes they're not getting kickbacks and they're just being paid like a, a, a salary. Right. I, yeah. The ones yeah. at the uh, rehab I was working at were getting paid on salary. Right. And they were being covered as house managers. Right. Yeah. So you wouldn't know from the blind eye that this person that's actually looking over for you is actually gonna get you to relapse in 10 days and send you back to detox yeah so insurance can get paid another 50 grand off you right so it's it's very harmful and other people hide in other ways behind body brokering too um if you want to talk about what we recently saw on tiktok right so i'm just gonna like call it right out be more love tiktok it's a man in baltimore maryland who is calling himself an outreach worker right and um, that's what i thought he was right and he is he is dead set on getting people into rehab he's placed over 700 something people into rehab in a year yeah and he doesn't know holy shit, shit about what's happened to any of them afterwards he doesn't have this is the problem i have with rehab and this is the problem i have with like the substance use disorder industry that has been right. built up around, like, on the bodies and corpses of our friends, like, our community. Yeah. The industry um, does not keep track of their death rates. Right. That's That's in- unconscionable. Yeah. How? I, I have actually tried to find them before. Yeah. And that, 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 I didn't know that they just weren't there. I thought I wasn't looking in the they right are not. In t- they're not obligated at all to keep track of their death rates. That's and there are very, very like low standards around like who can start a rehab and what oh, a yeah. rehab has to look like as far yeah. as quality of care. Yeah. So it's- how the federal government has tried to get around it is coming out with this thing called the ECRA law. And what ECRA law is ECRA. ECRA. Okay. It's um, an acronym of something. Yeah, I don't know yeah. what it stands for exactly, but I had to go through the training. I did the whole training, and had I not, like, taken it seriously, you miss a lot. Yeah. And this was, like, a 30-minute training class that everybody who works in a rehab or does any kind of marketing they're supposed to do by federal law. Okay. And this was the way that the government thought, oh, we'll combat this. Like, this should finish the, you know, this should get rid of the body brokering. And it doesn't. And what ECRA basically is, is where you go in and you can't tell a client like hey if you come to my rehab i'll get you a laptop or i'll buy you clothes or okay. uh, i'll make sure i get you an uber anywhere you need or you know you're gonna live in this right. five million dollar house it like come stay my... right you can't make any promises you can mm-hmm. say things like we provide your food um you can say things like we will include your housing case management but you're not supposed to make a promotional video for your five million dollar fucking treatment house right and say this is where you're gonna be like you're not supposed to do that 
um, yes, they can have a website and post pictures, but mm-hmm. say that I was contacting you and saying, hey, come to my rehab. You'll get to live in this house. You'll get to have your own room. Yeah. I'm going to get you a laptop, anything you need. Right. You can't do that. Yeah. And they're just finding back doors to say those things mm-hmm. without saying those things. Right. So the law did nothing. The law, <laughs> the law always does nothing. Like that is the, that's a pattern. We have to yeah. call it a check, a, a track. Um, for, for the rehab industry, back to the tornado mm-hmm. analogy. If the tornado hit and in Tornado Alley, the people who didn't have storm shelters ended up getting hurt. And then an industry was built up around that for like wound care and like rehabilitation of their, the harms inflicted on them. Um, and then the death rates and the people who didn't move on to the next step were never recorded. And the criteria for anyone who wants to run that kind of institution was just that they had survived a tornado once. Right. Like, fuck off. This yeah. is not the way that you provide comprehensive health care to people with a real mental disorder. Right. And to to have, like, people who are designated to go out and headhunt disabled, mentally ill people. Right. I mean, we can call it right there. We don't have to say anything more about, like, why that's unethical. But if we do want to say anything more, like, it's unethical because it's predatory. Right. It's predatory. And the other, like, predatory, like, phrase that I always hear that I think a lot of people, it doesn't, like, ring the same bells in their head. Maybe it's because I've just worked for a company that was brokering. Is if somebody comes up to you when you're in active addiction, right? Somebody comes up to you and their first couple sentences out of their mouth are, do you need help? I can get you help. What insurance do you have? Why the fuck are you asking me what insurance I have if yeah. you really want to help me? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Like, what is that? <laughs> oh, my God. Because if I have somebody that wants to go to rehab so bad and they've made that decision, not me telling them they need rehab, yeah. and they say, no, I want to go to rehab. Like, I want to be impatient. I need long-term help to right. get out of this. Yeah. My question at the end, after the conversation is, do you have insurance? Not what kind. Right. And if they say, no, I don't. Then we okay, have to let me find you a different adventure. Right. <laughs> let me find you a scholarship. Let me yeah. see what I can do. Da, 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 da. It should never be what kind of insurance. And then do they you do have? like turn people away for they not do. having insurance. 100%. So that's not what Be More Love is doing. His particular like brand of body brokering is if you don't have insurance, like they'll get you signed up for it once you end up in a bed in the facility so they'll get you yeah yeah like medicaid or like state uh you know that's also illegal yeah it's weird it's It's just weird because one of the the company that i worked for um even if you had insurance and it wasn't their preference of the higher payout that they could get from a better insurance they would create you a fake address in a state that they specifically yeah. wanted the insurance to come from. And then now you've frauded the government and the insurance companies. There's a place here in, in Tennessee, I can't remember the name of it. Actually, there's a few that will make you sign up for food stamps and then make you turn over those food stamps oh to pay gosh. for your meals. Wow. Yeah. And that happens often in like shelters. And Oh, yeah. I've heard of that in yeah. shelters. That's so just... crazy. 
it's a money grab. And then the fact that rehabs and drug rehabilitation institutions don't have to provide like actual efficacy. Yeah. Like they don't have to follow any like best practice. They absolutely can just say like, we're going to, we're going to shame you and make you stop using drugs and dry you out completely and give you Jesus and religion. And then if you don't make it, like you just didn't do it right. Yeah, and I think, like, you, how you said, um, basically, like, anybody can start a rehab. Anyone. And one of the companies I worked for, how he actually started this giant monstrosity of his, what he considers helping people. Right. Um, he was not an addict. He was a normal dude who wanted to figure out how he could make money and how to make a lot of it. He was at the end of his whatever cash grab he was on. He knew it was running out. And he actually met a bunch of addicts on Hollywood Boulevard. And they said, hey, man, we know how we can make you some money. And so here we are with a bunch of people in active addiction. I know who these original people are, too. And they're actually really cool people. Right. But... So I'm not, no shade on them. They're trying to get money too. But sure. <laughs> so they're they telling this. a couple this, better ideas. So they're telling this. Just imagine me. I'm I'm tweaking out. I'm coming up to you. you you're a millionaire, right? Right. And I'm like, hey, I know how we can make us a bunch of money. Like, you're probably going to tell me to go away. This guy said no. Got a hotel room. Invited them all in. Gave them a place to stay. Listened to them talk. And took all of their ideas. Yeah. And started this with no background no ethics to it nothing let's get a house let's throw people in it let's get a couple therapists group facilitators right boom rehab started yeah that's how it started what the hell like that you that there should be no reason that should happen no it's just (laughs) not responsible and at this point it is a million people who've died since 1999 yeah a fucking million guys like, it's crazy. That's crazy. That's not okay. Like, yeah. it is, like, on TikTok, I got a big, like, lash, lash, uh, what is it? Backlash? Backlash. Yeah. <laughs> from saying that it's genocidal. Yeah. Um, And I understand the um social pushback from yeah. that because I'm, I'm a Jewish person. Like, I totally get that g- genocide is defined as, like, racial um annihilation or like religious groups or right but this is a group of people it's a group of people this is a group this is a community of people yeah and it's a million of them so why not just in their perspective let them all die my partner calls it um xenocide xeno meaning like different and foreign and yeah they're just different than you and you're okay with wiping out mass amounts of them it's a massacre Right. Yeah. So when it comes to Be More Love and his particular mission and the way that he's producing content and how he does not have people who use drugs in mind. Right. That's one of my biggest issues is that that's what the rehab industry is doing as well. Right. They're not listening and they're not um, they're not focusing on on the expressed needs yeah. of the using population. 
100%. And if they were, the using population would say, rehab would be cool if I could smoke weed. And if I was self-led in my goals. Yeah. And if coming off of fentanyl was a huge win and I still right. smoke some meth. Yeah. Come on. Like, yeah. why is that not a win? Right. Why is that not a step in recovery? Right. But recovery, as we know it in America, demands perfect adherence to a really unsuccessful goal for most yeah. people and then nothing in between. They want us to fit in their cookie cutter of like what a person should be. Yeah. How many times have you heard the you got to you got to wait till somebody's ready? Yeah. Ready yeah. for what? Right. Some people are never that ready that they're right. talking about. Ready for what? Yeah. Ready for um, swearing off all psychoactive substances forever. Right. And it's asking people who are mentally ill to make the biggest change all at once and and totally forsake their only coping mechanism. Yeah. And... Like, what are we, what are we going to give them in replace? Because... It's, yeah, there's got to be some gaps filled yeah. there. And once, once they've reached that perfect goal, this unattainable, change everything all at once, do the biggest, hardest thing yeah. that you've never been able to do, and just get it out of the way in this, like, condensed moment of, yeah. like, 30 to 90 days. Yeah. After that... Trauma therapy itself takes so long to go through. So, yeah, it's slow. So you want somebody to take these tools to completely change their life right. in anywhere from 20-something days to 90 days, some programs. Right. How the fuck is that going to work? Everybody's brain and their bodies, we work at different paces. And when's the last time, anyone who's listening, when's the last time that you had a habit that you just walked away from all at once? Right. I can't even stop smoking cigarettes. I, like, have a nicotine drip. I just smoked like, a cigarette and I'm still <laughs> smoking this vape. Yeah, like, <laughs> it is beyond comprehension that that's the uh, expectation right. when all evidence and just looking around with eyes wide open yeah. means you understand that that's just not how human behavior works. Yeah. Small, incremental change that is self-led and self-directed is so sustainable. Right. Nothing else is. I always try to, like, ask people, um, like, when they, you know, like, have a bad view on it or a bad take or, you know, just their opinion's real shitty about the whole subject. Right. I always try to ask them, like, what if it was your kid? Yes. And, you know, there are people in the world who never talk to their kids and act like they didn't exist. But we're not talking about them. We're talking about the people, like, what if this was your kid? Right. And I want to talk about those people a little bit. Because yeah. all of Mainline's participants are, a lot of them, have families who have wealth. Right. Like, Nashville's homeless population is majority white. Right. With generational wealth of some kind. Yeah. A lot of them have support available that's being denied. Right. Because right? it's come back when you're clean. Yes. How the fuck am I supposed to get clean? Yes. And in the meantime, I'm watching people get limbs amputated. Right. Like, if I am your family member, why would you ever let me lose my leg yeah. before you let me be part of your life? Yeah. 
It doesn't make sense. No, 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 no. So if it were my kid, and I, I do it, I have two boys, and they are yeah. people who use drugs. Yeah. And um, my oldest son has HIV. Okay. Which is something I need to say because of Tennessee who just rolled back HIV funding. Oh, yeah, and I'm just pissed. Yeah. But if he were to be a drug somebody who suffered substance use disorder, I would do my darn damnedest to find him a safe supply. Right. And to offer him valid and useful advice on safe practice. And I would make myself available to him so that he never had to use alone. Yeah. And I think what's missing for so many American parents is like when you abandon your child and it feels so wrong to do that. It's because it's wrong. It's because it's actually not, it's yeah. not okay. Yeah. Like, it's actually going against your basic human instincts that you are, you are a parent and 100%. they need you to just be a parent. Yeah. They don't need you to show up and fix their life and change their mental situation and their mental health. They just need you to call them every day. And they just need to know that they have a safe place to be. And yeah. it's with you under your Right. And honestly, the only, I hate the stigma that people who suffer substance use disorder, and I don't like saying suffer. Right. Just who Who experience that. That they're manipulative or liars. Right. And they're not. There are some people who are assholes who also have substance use disorder. And then the rest of them are like really sweet, loving people who just want to not be shamed. And don't want to experience your judgment. And therefore, they tell you a different story. I feel like had I had an open line of communication with my parents when I was in active addiction, that I wouldn't have had to lie. I wouldn't have had to be manipulative. Exactly. But the the shame that was put on me and the expectations, Mm -hmm. what what was I going to do? If you're I'm, not, in, I'm backed into a corner. How are you going to be mad at somebody for not telling you the truth when you're not safe to tell the truth to? Right. 100%. So if it were my kid, honestly, if it was an opioid addiction, I would send him straight off to Portugal to get on the heroin prescription programs there yeah. and have clean and safe supplies and where the average opioid addiction lasts about four years. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. A doctor just prescribes you as much heroin as you want, and then most most people wean themselves off. Right, because this, the whole stigma, everything about it is completely different. And it just kind of gets old. Right. You know? You don't have to hide from anything right. when you have that feeling. And when you're not chasing money and drugs all day, and you just have like a safe supply accessible all the yeah. time, you can live a life, you can fill a day. Yeah. You can do work on yourself. Yeah. You can heal. I feel like we give our kids sex education. Why are we not giving them drug education? Absolutely. Especially if we find out that they are using any type of drug. Comprehensive drug education is just as necessary as active shooter drills, unfortunately. Yeah. Stop acting like it doesn't exist. I think I'd rather explain to my kid on how to safely use drugs if I found out he was using them over how to hide behind a bulletproof backpack. Right. In his classroom. Yes. 
that would be an easier conversation because I still haven't been able to have that conversation with my kid because it's I don't know what to heart say. wrenching. Yeah. Like, how do we do this? And, and I just want to mention with whatever minutes we have left, Tennessee is so fucked up. Yeah. And I want everyone to kind of look at us here in Tennessee as a glaring red flag as to what's going to happen to you. Right. You're not safe in a safe state and it's not just happening no. to us. And I feel like the direction Tennessee going is also going to have more people turning to drugs because they're not comfortable with themselves or their communities. Right. And it's another way for them to essentially cope. It's going to create a spike in that, too, just like COVID created a spike. Mm-hmm. If we put shitty laws on people where they don't feel like they're free. Right. They're Drug gonna... use is recession proof. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like... <laughs> It is the thing that will always be at the bottom yes. of every economy, yeah. and it will always exist, and we cannot eradicate drug use. Yeah. And every time we talk about it, we're talking about eradicating the drug users, Yeah. and that's where we're at. Yeah, I feel like, you know, my kid's only, he's almost six, but there will be education on my part for him and I'm really afraid of what your six-year-old will be facing then then yeah yeah Yeah. 100% I grew up with one of my parents was an addict before I was born and he got sober and I didn't find out I don't even know (laughs) yeah I might get fucking flamed for talking about this but it's all right It's, it's a big part of my story um I didn't find out that there was past drug use in their life until I was 16 and already on drugs. Right. I got I got little phrases like keep your nose clean, you know, and little 13 me, I thought he meant like don't get in trouble, but right. he, you know, I got phrases like keep your nose clean, uh, you know, I know what you're doing and that's bad. He was bad. Like, sober at this time or like Yeah, recovery? yeah, so okay. um no drug use happened after I was born that I know of. But I never found out about that period yeah. of their life until I was 16. So I went my whole yeah. life with them being abstinent mm-hmm. and thinking, this is the way I have to live. Meanwhile, yeah. I'm turning into somebody in active addiction. And you were getting a message from your parents of warning rather but than education and understanding. Yeah. Yes. Like, I needed, I feel like I always needed to hear, like, straight up what the fuck happened. Yeah. And I think that goes back to me, like, being autistic, too. Like, yeah. I'm, I never, like, I believe what I'm told. So if you're telling me these things, I don't realize that there's a backstory to Mm -hmm. it. So I never got, like, that understanding, like, you're talking about. I thought I was just being scolded and shamed and da 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 da. Like, I never, it never occurred to me that, like, this person had been through that. Yeah. And that's why I speak so fucking loud about what I've been through because, Fuck, yes. God forbid, my kid just grows up thinking, like, oh, my mom was perfect. Like, it's, it's kind <laughs> of, it's a betrayal. Yeah. Like, I didn't know who you were. Of trust. Yeah. Like, I didn't even know who you were. Yeah. We're not intimate anymore. Yeah. When it comes to substance use, we have shut out all intimacy and all comprehensive understanding and what it really boils down to is 
kids, for me, like in my own experience, I realized that everything everybody told me was a lie, like the cult and all that, like critical thinking skills developed. And then when I first was introduced to substances and the thing that my whole community told me would happen didn't happen. Nobody like turned into like some kind of like manic, crazy person because they did some coke. I was like, fuck, they lied to me about that too. Right. And I just went hard. Yeah, because then you're like, oh, well, that didn't happen. So nothing's going to happen on this drug. The scary stories don't work. Yeah. It's like that mean, like in Mean Girls where they're like, you're going to have sex, get pregnant, and die. Yeah. Come on. Come on. (laughs) Scary stories don't work. And the fear mongering doesn't work. And it only serves to like reinforce a public understanding that we have to eliminate the drugs. Yeah. Drugs are always going to be there. We have to accept that. We do. We have to, like, just be okay with people getting high and really standing up for them and validating and demanding that they have every resource available to survive their drug use. Right. It is not the natural consequence of drug use. I'm so sick of people acting like it is. Yeah. Death is not the thing that happens to people who use drugs. Right. But under drug prohibition... It is. What's that thing in NA and AA? They're like, Jail institutions are death. death. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather go to an institution or jail. That's totally <laughs> out of context of the drug war. Yeah. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. It's fucked up. I hate that. Okay. Well, thank you for coming on to the podcast today and sharing with us all your thoughts and your experiences. I really appreciate it. You're definitely somebody who's voice I wanted to have on here um we met on TikTok I don't know if I said that already but we met on TikTok and I'm so grateful for TikTok for that because now I found somewhere where I feel a part of something and it's not like this little voice in my head that's like you're not doing enough like you're like you're doing enough (laughs) you know and it's it, it really helps show compassion to other people who are going through this and that there's another way that's not abstinence. And I thought you were the perfect person to come on and talk about that. So thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that you've had me. And I I think TikTok is a really toxic, awful place. Yeah. But then there's another side where it's allowing people who have um, the same experiences to find community. Right. And I focus on that and I delete all the nasty comments. Yeah. And it's really, really helpful to know there's people who care enough to act as if they don't know everything right and that's really important when it comes to what we're dealing with right now the environment that we're in it's essential for us to move forward with humility and understand that like shit's really dangerous and scary and we should show up to provide yeah a protection yeah. And in a sense of community. 100%. And help people get high, don't die. Yeah. Yeah. If they want to get Shannon. high, we just don't want them to die. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Go but, ahead and share your TikTok name on here so we can have that too. What is is Mainline it? Harm Reduction? Yes. At yeah. Mainline Harm Reduction. At Mainline Harm Reduction. And my name is Miriam Fields. And if you judge me, then fuck you. Then fuck you. All I want to do is 
spread compassion and love and allow people to have comprehensive tools to survive this really fucked up shit that happened to us. The tornado has, it is here. It's here. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. This was great.